0: Murray to the carpet. (laughs) All right, thank you. Got a new setup over here, carry my own things. I'm glad we don't have a stage because I couldn't walk back and forth with these lights. That would have been a real bummer. Um, But Shannon, thank you for the introduction. Like she said, my name is Murray. Uh, I'm part of the pastoral leadership team here at Antioch. Um, My wife, Lakin, and I have been here a little over six years, uh, we actually moved from Arkansas to be a part of this church body. Uh, We've got three little kiddos, Mac, who's in here (laughs) waving, yes. He'll probably tune this out. I practiced with him today, so he's already heard this. He doesn't care anymore. Uh, We've got Sam and Luca as well. Uh, We are extremely busy, and they keep us on our toes, but we love them. And again, like Shannon mentioned, if it's your first time first few times. I just want to say thank you for being here. We're honored that you're here with us today, that you're spending your Sunday. We would love to get connected with you, uh, and that's what those cards are for. But as we jump in today, we've been in a series titled First Love Fire. Chris, uh, our lead pastor who has passed the torch to me today uh, as he's out on spring break, uh, wants me to continue today through Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. It was written by Paul the Apostle to the church in Ephesus. And I think we've been in here for 10 weeks or so in Ephesians, uh, quite the time in Ephesians. But what have we learned about the first, this is quiz time, what have we learned about the first three chapters of Ephesians? If nobody answers, I'm calling on my wife. Identity, that's right. Okay, good. We got that. The first three chapters, Paul really hones in on identity. So your identity in Christ, Christ became a man. He was in the flesh as a man. He lived a perfect life without sin. He went to the cross. He was crucified for our sin. He conquered death after three days, rose again. And because of that, we get new identity in Christ. And chapter one tells us we are given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places Chapter 2 says, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Chapter 3 shows us we're given the Holy Spirit. It says, we are strengthened with power through his spirit in our innermost being. So we're given a new identity in Christ when we first believe. and It actually changes everything about you. So it no longer matters what maybe your dad said about you or your mom or that third grade classmate or a teacher or a coach. It doesn't matter anymore because you now have a father in heaven who actually has really good things to say about you. And he's exchanged that old identity that's weighed you down, that maybe has kept you in shackles. He's exchanged that for his identity and the freedom to obey him because you have a new father in heaven. And the, night, the neat thing about that is I was kind of reflecting on identity. This, it sticks out to me um, that when God the Father looks down at us because of Jesus, he's actually looking through Jesus now. And so to see you, he has to look through Jesus' perfection. When Jesus was perfect on earth, he is perfect now, and he will be perfect forevermore. That is what God the Father sees in you when he looks at you. And then chapters 4 through 6, we see a pretty big shift from Paul, right? We had identity, and now we have instruction. That's right, we have instruction. So how do we actually live out this new identity in Christ? Paul describes some things in these chapters that really, if, if we're looking at the culture around us, are the exact opposite of what we see. We seem to talk about humility, gentleness, patience, unity, and if you're anything like me, you can look around and you see the opposite. But if I'm really being honest, when I look at my own life, I see arrogance and harshness and agitation and disunity. But Paul, he actually encourages us to live in a spirit-filled life. And this is how we overcome those sinful patterns we've developed in a life apart from God. And as we learn to live this spirit-filled life. And when we actually go after the calling in Ephesians, we undoubtedly come against opposition. And that's where we land tonight, at the end of Ephesians in chapter six. And I'm preaching tonight, and I actually get to come back next week. Uh, Yeah, double dose of me. Um, Hopefully my voice is better. I, I didn't have a voice for like half the week this week, so I have a cough drop, a couple of them. You may hear me uh, chewing on here, but uh, I'm coming back next week and it's really going to be practical focus. Like how do we actually do that as a body? Like in everyday life, how do I interact with my wife, my kids, my community by acting out and, and living out these things? But tonight we're going to dig into Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 10. Before we go any further, I'm just going to pray one more time. Father, I just pray that your spirit would come reign and rule in this room. That your words would be spoken. That if I have anything written down that is not of you, Lord, that it would disappear. That I would not speak it, but you would speak through me tonight. I pray that your armor would become a reality for us. That you would open our eyes to the truth of who you are and the truth of the battle that we are in individually and corporately as a church family. I ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So before we jump in, Blake, thank you for the water. I don't really want to glaze over the fact that uh, some of you might not even be aware that there is opposition. And for most of my life, if you would have asked me, Murray, is there opposition to a spirit-filled life? I think I probably would have told you no. There's, there's actually not opposition. Like, I live a pretty nice life. It's pretty easy. It's pretty good. Um, but really at the core of that, I don't, I don't know that I knew what a spirit-filled life was to begin with. But if you'd asked me that question, I would have said no. No, it's not. There's not opposition. I'm not aware of it, at least. Um, I was living ignorantly, if I'm being frank. Life seemed to be pretty good. I had a Christian home. I was around many Christians I checked the box of doing all the right things and stayed out of trouble and, and did all of those things. And if I thought about evil and if there was evil in the world, it was probably something I saw on TV. Like that doesn't actually happen in my life. That's in a faraway place. That's on a TV show, or maybe it's I'm from small town Arkansas. Maybe it's a big city like Salt Lake. That's where evil happens. That's not in Jonesboro, Arkansas. That's not that's not true. That can't happen there. But then we moved to Salt Lake City about six years ago, a little over six years ago, and that all changed for me. It flipped on its head almost instantly. And maybe some of you are tracking with me on this. Maybe you moved to Salt Lake City and you started experiencing things you haven't experienced anywhere else or maybe in your entire life. And that became a reality for me when my wife, Laken, um, this was probably our first year in Salt Lake City. And throughout our marriage, she would wake up Every once in a while, like not every night, but every so often, um, seeing or feeling something in our house or in our room. And, you know, she'd wake me up and, hey, somebody's here. Somebody's here. Go check. And I didn't believe her at all, actually. I would get really frustrated. Like, you're making this up. Like, there's literally nothing here. Like, I can check the house. If you want, like, we're good. It, it's okay. But one night, we usually sleep with our door closed, completely but I hear her, she jumps up and she says something like, leave in the name of Jesus. And in that moment, when I woke up, I saw her door was about three quarters of the way open. And when she said, in Jesus' name, I command you to leave or whatever piece of that phrase she said, the door started to close and it went completely shut. And I was like, what the heck is that? Like, what, what just happened? We didn't have kids running around the house. So I'm just like, okay, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. Like, what did you see? And she just describes this uh, figure there that when she commanded it to leave, just kind of dropped its head, slowly turned around and closed the door and, and went away. And so that was very weird and interesting for me. Maybe this is the first time you're hearing a story like this. We could chat after, maybe talk to Blake or somebody. But um, the next thing I started to realize is our kids, Mac and Sam especially, would wake up in the middle of the night, like scared to death, like screaming that they saw something in their room. And as a father, you're like, I have to help you, but what do I do? I, I don't know what to do. This is pretty crazy. But that started to open my eyes to this whole new world something I'd never experienced before. And if you know me today and you didn't know me previously, you'll start to realize I've had over five years many of those types of experiences, uh, going to battle, so to speak, and the spiritual kind of things, whether it's been in my own life or my home or across this city. But it started to open my eyes. And some of you haven't experienced those things yet. You might be similar to me, Growing up in small town Arkansas, you had a comfortable life for the most part, and you might think I'm just some crazy dude up here with a mic. That's totally okay, because I think I can back it up a little bit. We're going to turn into Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 is where we'll start. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places so paul pretty says pretty plainly we're in a battle and it's not a battle against the unbeliever it's not a battle against the other team it's it's not that person or this person that we're battling No, it's not actually a physical battle at all. I mean, according to Paul, it's one we can't even see. It's a spiritual battle that that Paul calls us to be ready for. I was actually having a conversation earlier this week with a couple, and we started talking about spiritual warfare. This came up, and we all are not originally from here, but we started to realize as we talked that it's much harder in Salt Lake City than it is in Arkansas, where I'm from. Haven't you all noticed it seems to be a little bit harder here? And that's why, as a leadership team, as part of the leadership team here, we're going to continue reminding you and training you and getting you ready for this battle. That's our job. It's a spiritual battle we're all facing. Uh, This quote from Jimmy Seibert, he's the pastor in Antioch in Waco, Texas, has always really stuck with me. he, He talks about pulling back, pulling out, and being picked off. And if we don't really believe we're in a war, then we can have seasons of pulling back. And then once we pull back, we start to pull out, and then ultimately we're picked off. And we've lost a fight that we didn't even know we were in. We were woefully unprepared for that. And I wish it wasn't true. I wish we could avoid the fight, but we can't. I'm going to read a quote from the Joker, which I never thought I'd read a quote from the Joker in church, but Chris is out of town, so I can do what I want, honestly. (laughs) But uh, it's a scene in the Joker, and uh, Batman is talking to Alfred. That's like his assistant. And Alfred is describing the Joker, and he says this. Some men aren't looking for anything logical like money. They can't be bought, bullied, or reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men... Just want to watch the world burn. That's actually the enemy we have. Do you guys know that? The enemy we face wants to watch the world burn. A little more uh, valid than the Joker, Jesus actually describes our enemy in John 10.10. He says this, The thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We have a very real enemy in a very real battle set before us. Let us not ignore it any longer. And like any good army, we need to know our enemy. We need to know the strategy of our enemy, how we can strategically fight this battle and do all that. And I think anytime I start talking about this or you hear this, maybe the thought is like, we can't become obsessed with Satan and the enemy and the schemes of the devil. And I'm 100% with you. That's actually a rabbit hole we don't want to go down that leads to some weird places. But again, just being frank, in my experience and what I've seen, it's actually the total opposite. We don't give a flip what the enemy's doing. We don't even know we're in a battle and it doesn't matter to us. And so tonight we're, we could probably do many teachings on, on this of like how Satan attacks us or how the enemy comes after us. I'm going to focus on one, one of those. And so what is Satan doing to us? Well, the number one way Satan will come attack you is through lies. John 8 says this, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is a liar, and he will do everything in his power to bring deception through lies. And do everything he can to make you believe them, to internalize them, make them your reality. This excerpt from Truth About Lies by David Tackle, it's a great book, but he says this, he says, he, the devil, cannot violate our will or make us sin. But he can present to us distortions or twist the truth so we no longer know which way is up. We greatly trivialize the work of the enemy when we say his primary activity is to tempt us to do bad things. That's only a small part of his strategy. If he can keep us from hearing the truth or keep us from internalizing the truth once we hear it, if he can fill our hearts with all sorts of distortions about spiritual realities, then we will go off on our own to self-destruct without any need for constant harassment or temptation. That's a heavy quote. But that's almost the reality. So he, the devil, cannot violate our will or make us sin. That's pretty key. We are actually all accountable for our own sin. It's not anybody else's fault. It's not a circumstance you're in. It's not a situation. It's not the enemy's fault. It's on us. We are accountable for all of that. But he can present to us distortions or twist the truth so we no longer know which way is up. It's actually, in my experience, seems to be occurring at very deep levels. A lot of it is around identity that we talked about in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Our identity is so scarred by the lies we've believed growing up that we can't hear or even believe the truth about ourselves. We can't compute that in our minds. We're incapable of ever gaining freedom from those lies apart from Jesus and his freedom. We'll talk about a little bit of of how to combat that coming up, but I think it's a huge distortion that we see play out. He goes on to say that we would trivialize what he tries to do in our life if we only think he's trying to tempt us. And believe me, the enemy would want nothing more And from you and me to believe that all this stuff we can't actually see isn't real. That if we don't see it with our eyes and we can't perceive it, that it's not a reality. And then if it's not real, we don't have the right weapons to fight it. Because you're fighting an enemy you can't see. It's like taking a screwdriver and trying to hammer in a nail. The nail needs to be driven in. That's the outcome, but a screwdriver is not going to do it a hammer has to drive the nail in. Okay, that's a lot. Getting some nods. Okay, we're with me. Good. My goal isn't to like stand up here and make you scared and like, oh my gosh, you're in this battle. You didn't even know. And like, that's not it. Actually, if you're feeling that, that's a lie from the enemy uh, that you are needing to be in fear. My goal is actually to make you aware that we are in a fight. And I'm trying to equip you with the truth of our circumstances and move forward in the reality to engage in the fight. I want us to deal with our own sin and also the spiritual consequences we may have invited in when we partner with those lies. So let's look at how we do that. that we'll finally get to Ephesians 6 again, the second part of the armor of God. We'll pick back up in verse 13. It says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Ephesians 13 through 20. Let's unpack that just a little bit. I think there's three critical things we see just in that first verse, verse 13. Paul tells us to take up the full armor of God. Not just some of the armor that God has for us. Not just what you're gifted in. Like, I'm really gifted in this thing. So, like, that's my piece of armor for me to hold. No, he actually says take up the whole armor. Every bit of it. And Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, didn't waste words or put extra words in there so the Bible becomes longer. Like, he actually meant the whole armor of God because we need it to fight with. We have to have it. God, being a good father, has prepared us for every battle we face. And not only has he prepared us, he's actually positioned us for victory. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't have lots and lots of battles or we can't overcome these things. But what it does mean is it will never actually have victory if there was never a challenge. So if you've never been to battle and you've never been challenged, there actually isn't victory there. There's a false victory. But that's the first thing to understand about the armor of God. The second key piece of verse 13 is withstand in the evil day. Withstand, resist. We're standing against it. We have to be absolutely committed to resisting the advances of the enemy in our lives. Let me say it this way. We have to be vigilant to resist the lies of the enemy. That's our job. We have to withstand in the evil day we have to resist the final piece of verse 13 is stand firm and do we stand firm in our own strength no we don't right i mean some of you it's lent like i think people probably gave up sugar i know a couple people they're like white knuckling through lent to like give up sugar and like you're doing great it's close to easter like the reese's eggs are so close But that's not what God's calling us here, to stand firm in our own power. Because whether it's the end of Lent, or it's tomorrow, or it's next week, we don't have the power to withstand on our own. And if we aren't defending ourselves against the lies of the enemy from the very beginning, it actually becomes a fortress that entraps us. And this is actually the battle in the spiritual realm for us. Because if we aren't resisting those small things right away and we're not aware of it, the enemy has a whole list of things he wants to entrap us in. So stand firm in the Lord. I love how Jesus says in Matthew 7, we'll go here, to stand firm. Jesus says it this way, Therefore, if anyone hears the words of mine and acts on them, he may be compared to a wise man who builds his house on the rock, And the rain fell, and the wind came. The wind blew and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain fell, the winds came, and blew and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Standing firm isn't this command for like super Christians or elite Christians it's a command for all of us. So whether you met the Lord like 15 minutes ago in worship and you just met him for the first time or you've been walking with him for decades, the call for you is to stand firm in the Lord. So, okay. We get first past that first bit. I'm going to move into the armor of God. Now remember, if God has positioned us for victory, we should pay attention to the tools he's given us. And we need to put them on today and every day, but today. So the first one, fasten the belt of truth. Our first piece of armor is a piece that actually holds it all together. The belt is critical to the armor because without it, you can't hold your sword and your breastplate doesn't stay up and nothing is held together without the belt. And so the truth here is not only the word of God, which the Bible, but it's also living in the truth living in the light. Psalm 51, six says, Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. The truth is like a light in our innermost being. God shines the light there, and the light disappears. It's like if we turn the lights off in here, and we shut the shades, there'd be darkness. But if we turned on a light, the darkness disappears. And so what that looks like is... We can ask God to come and search us and know us. God, what needs to be brought to the light? Where do you need to uncover darkness in me? How can I do that? I want to put on my belt of truth. I want to live in the light. God, show me, reveal to me what needs to be uncovered. That's how we put on the belt of truth. Next, we have the breastplate of righteousness. And not only are we made in the image of God, but When we come to know Jesus and through salvation, we're given not a heart of stone anymore, but a heart of flesh, right? And then also it says we become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians. And the breastplate is his righteousness. It's his protection. It's his strength. It's his power. The breastplate protects that heart, that heart of flesh that we were given at salvation. And so protecting what he has given us, is of utmost priority for him. So when we put on the breastplate of righteousness, it looks like turning our affections to the Lord. This heart of flesh is turned to the Lord in affection. And that's how he protects us. The next tool, it's actually our first offensive weapon, our shoes. It's not typically thought of, like if you read a lot of stuff about Ephesians 6, it all feels very defensive. I would argue the shoes Are actually an offensive weapon. Because the shoes are the readiness of the gospel of peace. The gospel, according to Romans, another book written by Paul says that salvation is the or the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The greatest hope of the enemy is that we would never share the gospel with anybody. That we would never open our mouths and share with people the gospel. And maybe that looks like I'm just like really scared. To tell somebody the truth. I don't want to tell them the gospel. They're going to think I'm crazy. They're not going to like me. I can't do it. I don't have enough faith. Whatever it is, maybe maybe you think they're okay. They're all right without the gospel. They're successful. They don't need it. But those are actually lies from the enemy trying to stop you from giving someone the power that they so desperately need. That's the power of the gospel. The gospel will change lives. It changed my life and it will change other people's lives if they are told. So God is pursuing them and you've been given shoes to go and bring the gospel to the people who've never heard. It's an offensive weapon against the enemy to break down his strongholds. So next up is the shield of faith. And I was talking to A history buff friend of mine who sent me all these really nerdy links and pictures and stuff I think we actually have one of the pictures he sent sent me well that's the whole armor we'll go to the next one so this picture here this is uh when Paul was writing this is the Roman army this is obviously a recreation of that but um I'll send you the YouTube link if you'd like it very fascinating um but this is what the, the formation looked like, and if you read this, my mind immediately went to like, oh, the shield, like, that's a personal protective thing. Like, I, I can sit behind it. I can be protected, and of course you can. Like, if you're in battle, the shield is for you. Absolutely. It's a personal thing, but actually, it's more than just that. As you can see in the picture, it's actually a corporate protective shield device, because um, when you come together, you can see the front line has the shield in front of them and everybody else puts it over their head. And so they're protected from the fiery darts of the enemy. And while they're doing that, you'll notice their shoes that we talked about was an offensive weapon. This shield allows them to take ground from the enemy. So the shield protects us from the fiery darts, not so we can sit here and just stay It actually protects us so we can advance. We can advance in the battle and get close to the enemy. So then the question is, what is the shield of faith? Again, in Romans, Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith is the revelation from God through the scriptures to address an issue in our lives or the lives of those around us. And it's a team game here defending ourselves against the fiery darts. We each have a shield, but when combined with our brothers and sisters around us, no arrow gets through. And so what lies are you believing? What lies are coming at you that you constantly have to battle? You probably feel the, the fiery darts nonstop. You can't get rid of them. I think the first piece is, what does the word say about that lie? Have you asked God to reveal in his word how he would address those fiery darts? Find that and take up your shield. So again, I think the corporate piece of this may be even more interesting for us. How are we combining our shields at Antioch, Salt Lake City together with each other to advance the kingdom, take ground from the enemy? How do we come together and do that? This is actually the function of the church. And if we are protected together, we actually advance further than we would individually. We have more protection. We're moving next to the helmet of salvation. Salvation is security from God. It's what a helmet does. It protects your head. You're now adopted into his family. There's no questions asked. You can't be plucked from his hand. This helmet protects you from the lies of the enemy against your salvation. Now salvation isn't earned. It's not what you do or what you don't do. You are saved. You no longer fear death because you have a secure destination with Jesus for eternity, the helmet of salvation. That's the protection. Finally, the last one, the sword of the spirit. We actually get a weapon like that we're familiar with, right? A sword. This is the word of God, and the sword that Paul is describing here, I probably should have had a picture here, but uh, it's, it's like a close combat sword. Maybe a better word is like a dagger. So not, we're not thinking like sword fights, we're thinking like somebody's up close with a dagger. That's what we're thinking about. And so the imagery for the enemy in and, and this fight is actually a face-to-face fight with the enemy. It's a close combat battle. We weren't given a bow and arrow to shoot far away at the enemy that's distant and not around us, or we don't even really have to worry about it. It's actually a face to face, intimate battle with the enemy. And we use our sword to inflict real damage to the enemy. The enemy flees when we actually wield the word against him. That's a promise. Not only is it a description of the sword of the spirit, it's actually a promise that he will flee when we use that. And how do we do that? Well, I thought back to a story of a friend who recently, one night out of nowhere, just had these thoughts over and over and over and over again that his daughter was going to die, one of his daughters was going to die. And it was like the next day. They just wouldn't leave. He couldn't get over it. And he just, it overtook him almost. But what did he do? Instead of partnering with the lie, he takes up his sword. He takes up the word of God. And he says, okay, what does the word of God say about my children? What does it say about my children, your children, all of our children? It says, if I fear the Lord, righteousness will extend generation after generation. If I fear the Lord and delight in his commands, my children will be mighty on the earth. If I fear the Lord, my children will find refuge in the presence of the living God. It's a pretty good weapon, right? If you're fearing death, it's pretty good to take that. that. That starts to dissipate, right? I think another one that's really easy is fear. Not just fear of death or fear for your children, but just an overall sense of fear, of uncertainty of what's next. It's a pretty big one, but what does the word say about that? Well, 1 Timothy says, We were not given a spirit of fear, directs it. It actually directly addresses this. It says, we were not given a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. So if you're struggling with fear, my bet would be if you memorize that scripture, you won't struggle as much with fear. You'll actually start to live out of the reality that you have power, love, and a sound mind. That's what the sword of the Spirit does. It's what the Word of God does. Now finally, kind of a recap of all of those pieces of armor. What sticks out to me is you see it from the front and you're well protected, right? You have a breastplate and you have a helmet and you have all these things in front of you. There's actually no protection behind you. Like the breastplate doesn't wrap around around your back or anything behind you. I think there's significance there because if we are in a battle and God expected us to be in a battle... We have no protection when we turn away from the battle and we walk away from the battle. That isn't the promise from God. That his protection will take us there. It's actually a charge to stand firm, to go and face the battle forward, going together, individually with your shield, corporately with your shield, individually with your sword, corporately with your sword. That... Is the call of God on our lives. So that's the end of the list of the armor. And thank you, Lord, for giving us that protection, those weapons that you lay it out plainly. I mean, I, I love that. But Paul finishes the passage with prayer and supplication. He says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So it ends with this idea of prayer being how we actually go to war. How we actually battle is through prayer. Now, of course, that's prayer for ourselves. Lord, protect me, guide me, give me not a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. God, I need that. I need you. But even more than that, it's a corporate thing. How do we battle on behalf of the person next to us? on behalf of our family, of our church community, of this city. The call here is to continually pray for the saints. The saints, if you're unfamiliar, are actually all believers. Paul says it over and over in the New Testament when he addresses believers. He no longer says sinner or church or you people or anything else. He actually says saints. He addresses us as saints. So the prayer... Is for all the saints continuously. How are we battling for our neighbors, for our family, for our city? That's how we go to war. And so we ran through a ton, a ton, a ton of stuff through all of that. My voice held, held, which I'm really excited about. Um, but I get to come back next week, like I mentioned, on more of the practical side of things, like how do we actually if somebody is struggling with something spiritual, like how do we actually handle that? Like how do we go forward and go to battle through prayer and through some other things? So I'm gonna have that next week, right? But we're engaged in this battle, whether we want it or not. And the last thing I want or the leadership team wants or anyone here that has your back would, would be for you to pull back, pull out and get picked off. We don't want that to happen. And so as we start kind of these next couple weeks, where I'll end today is I want to invite the band up, invite life group leaders or ministry team to come up as well. Because I mentioned the belt of truth as being the most critical piece of our armor, right? That's what holds everything together. And if we put on the belt of truth, that means living in the light. That's part of the truth. We lay bare before the Lord because when he comes in with his light, the darkness disappears. And so the challenge today as we continue to worship through one last song is to lay bare before the Lord. Invite him in. Ask him where it is that the light needs to shine. How do you start living in freedom? Freedom from bondage and the shackles of the enemy and freedom in the Lord, to obey him, to know him, and to walk a spirit-filled life. So we would love some ministry people up here (laughs) as we respond. The band will lead us, and I'll close us here in just a minute.